Hello, and welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush podcast, episode 11, Soapy Smith, the uncrowned king of Skagway. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. This episode, we're going to take another break from following Tappanadney to the Klondike to look at the life and death of Soapy Smith. He might be the single most famous personality from the Gold Rush, even though he never made it anywhere near the Klondike. Even today, his grave, just outside the official Skagway Cemetery, is far more popular with visitors than that of Frank Reed, the dutiful citizen who died after shooting him in the famous gunfight on Skagway's Broadway Street. With 120 years of distance, most people find the bad guy far more interesting. Indeed. That's why this episode is about Soapy Smith and not Frank Reed. Smith was one of those legendary Gold Rush characters where the story is not actually exaggerated. His crimes and his brazenness were epic. The fact that he got away with it for so long, in Alaska and the lower 48 before that, is in sharp contrast to how the Northwest Mounted Police were running a pretty tight ship on the other side of the border, something we'll get to when we do our episode on Sam Steele and his men. When you visit Skagway, Soapy Smith seems to take up an inordinate amount of historic space. In an upcoming episode, we ask longtime Skagway resident and historian Alice Sear whether his outsized place in history is really deserved. She described him as both a truly terrible human being and an important man in Skagway, important to avoid. Jefferson Randolph Smith was born in Georgia in 1860 into a well-to-do family. His grandfather was a plantation owner and his father was a lawyer. However, the family was ruined financially in the Civil War and moved to Texas when he was 16 years old. His mother died the following year, and soon the young man left home, gravitating towards and quickly excelling in the rackets and swindles that were so much a part of frontier life in the American West at the time. In those days, he specialized in lucrative but small-time short cons such as rigged poker games, the shell game, and three-card Monty. These are classic scams. They don't require much investment in time or equipment, and it's easy for the con men to slip away afterwards. For those not familiar with three-card Monty or the shell game, these are cons that involve either three cards or three shells, one with a P under it, and the victim is tricked by the dealer and other gang members pretending to be bystanders or bettors into betting money on guessing the right card or where the P is. With a skilled dealer, this is virtually impossible to do. It was in Denver that Smith stepped up to bigger things and earned his nickname Soapy. He and his associates would set up a table on a busy street corner. He would show the crowd how bills up to $100 were inserted inside the wrapping of some of the bars of soap. Then he would sell the bars off for a dollar each. A shill planted in the crowd would buy a bar and wave around the money inside. The game was, of course, rigged in Smith's favor and was illegal. Once when he was arrested, the police officer forgot his first name and simply wrote Soapy Smith in the police journal. The nickname stuck. Soapy didn't leave Denver and continue the short cons on the road. Instead, sensing opportunity, he stayed in Denver, and within a few years, and still only in his mid-twenties, he'd built himself a criminal empire across gambling, including his own casino and saloon, fake lotteries, watch and diamond auctions, and even a fake stock exchange. Newspaper stories openly talked about the mayor and chief of police being on Soapy's payroll. Among Soapy's more gruesome cons was a preserved human body named McGinty, whom he charged 10 cents admission to see. While you were waiting in line, Soapy's con artists attempted to lure you into playing the three-card Monty. Soapy sold McGinty before he went to Alaska, and you can still see him at Ye Old Curiosity Shop at Pier 54 on the Seattle waterfront. 
Soapy's crimes contributed to a wave of anti-corruption reforms in Denver in the early 1890s, obliging him to move his operation to a booming Colorado mining town for a while. But friendly politicians were soon re-elected in Denver, and he returned to his former base. Another wave of anti-corruption campaigning ensued, and Soapy even managed to get himself deputized as a deputy sheriff as part of this. Apparently, he fulfilled his duties by making fake arrests whenever victims of his gambling scams threatened to make too much noise. He would arrest the victims of the scam, who, thinking it was a real arrest, were all too happy to leave the premises without complaining further, if given the chance, rather than be taken to the police station, where their gambling habits would become public. Smith was surprisingly open about what he did for a living, just as he would be in Skagway later. He told a Denver reporter that, quote, I consider bunco steering more honorable than the life led by the average politician. Finally, even for Denver, it was all too much. A new governor of Colorado clamped down on crime, and Soapy and his brother were accused of attempted murder. It was time to skip the state. But where to go next? He apparently posed as a colonel and offered the president of Mexico to recruit a battalion of American mercenaries, if paid enough, of course. But this fell through. Just at the right moment for Soapy, the Klondike gold mania kicked off. Again sensing opportunity, he went in 1897 with the first wave of Stampeders. He and his friends were soon doing three-card Monty in the shell game on the White Pass Trail, around the same time as Tap and Adney passed through, although Adney doesn't mention him. A miners committee took a dim view of the swindlers, however, and he was soon on a ship back outside. However, in January 1898, he decided to try again. The miners who'd run him out of town were probably all over the border, headed for the Klondike by then, and a new and large crop of potential suckers filled Skagway and Dyee. Seizing the opportunity, Soapy was soon putting a new and improved version of his Denver model in place in Skagway, with some creative new scams on top. His saloon and gang headquarters, Jeff Smith's Parlor, is still visible in Skagway. Soapy's obituary six months later in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer estimated he was making $200 to $250 a day, five dollars to $7,000 a day in our money. Deputy U.S. Marshal Sylvester Taylor in Skagway was soon on his payroll, and he spread the money around to buy friends and support. He did his best to be popular, ostentatiously giving money to widows and orphans. He spread his money freely. Sometimes, at his saloon, he would put a pile of gold on the bar and stay there, using it to buy drinks for everyone until it was gone. At faro or roulette, he would cover the layout in gold pieces. If he won a few thousand, he would not go to bed until he showed everyone a good time. Aware of the risk that a miners' committee or outraged posse of citizens might form, he went one better than his role as deputy sheriff in Denver. The Spanish-American War had broken out, and Soapy somehow got the Department of War in Washington, D.C. to recognize him and allow him to organize a ragtag volunteer army known as the Skagway Military Company. Soapy was now a captain and had his own semi-official armed force. He was even a marshal of the town's Fourth of July parade and sat with the governor of Alaska in the grandstand. In addition to his usual saloons, crooked gambling games, prostitution and run-of-the-mill scams, Soapy got creative in Skagway. Fraternal organizations such as the Odd Fellows or the Independent Order of Foresters were very common at the time, and some of Soapy's men had the right pins and secret handshakes to impersonate members. They would spot a newly arrived potential victim wearing such a pin on the waterfront and befriend them. Liquor, gambling, and con games came next. He set up a freight business. Stampeders would give their boxes to the freight office for shipment to Seattle and pay the bill. Then Soapy would just keep the money and the boxes. He also set up a telegraph office, 
for homesick stampeders to send messages to loved ones. You'd pay $5, over 100 bucks today, to send a short message. Of course, there was no undersea telegraph wire to Seattle. But, they say, if you checked back in a few days, you might have a reply from your friends and family, usually informing you of some family tragedy and asking you to send money, via the telegraph office, of course, back home to help. Skagway's underworld included widespread prostitution under incredibly exploitative conditions. Some called it the most dangerous job in Alaska. When an African-American prostitute named Ella Wilson was strangled and robbed in May 1898, some accused Soapy and his men of the crime, but no one was ever brought to justice. The lawless nature of Skagway also allowed Soapy more scope for violence, even than in Denver. People who disagreed with him would be taken to the edge of town and beaten. Soapy called this going to see the eagles. It's hard to imagine how alarming this was to the new arrivals in Skagway, especially those without lots of burly friends to protect them. And word spread fast. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer described Skagway as the wickedest town in the world, and a Northwest Mounted Police officer wrote that it was, quote, little better than hell on earth. Prior to this podcast, we wrote a series of historical youth adventure novels called the Aurora of the Yukon series. The chapters in one of the adventures where Aurora's mother is swindled by Soapy in Skagway with the telegraph office scam never failed to spark amazement among the students reading about Soapy's antics for the first time. We have some photos of Smith from around this time on the episode webpage at klondikegoldrush.org. He doesn't look like the larger-than-life figure he was, just 5 foot 6 inches tall and weighing around 150 pounds. He wore a full black beard. The post-intelligencer described him as slouchy in appearance and indifferently dressed. Quote, From Smith's appearance, no one would be led to suppose that he was the king of Alaska grafters and that he controlled them as surely and methodically as a general his army. The thing that struck you, apparently, was his dark, expressive eyes. Despite Soapy's best efforts to buy friends and stay popular, his gang began to generate increasingly serious opposition. In March, according to reports in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer at the time, the trouble began when a prominent Skagway businessman named McLean was brazenly sandbagged in front of his store on Broadway and robbed of $90. The Post-Intelligencer interviewed a Californian stampeder who was robbed of his outfit by Soapy's men, and he added that two or three robberies happened daily. Quote, Men were sandbagged in the streets, in the doors of the business houses, in the saloons, and robbed by fast women. A citizens group called the Committee of 101, which had been formed by citizens at what they used to call an indignation meeting after an earlier murder, and had, as its name suggests, 101 members, moved into action, along with the U.S. Marshal and Army troops now in Skagway. Posters were put up around town, telling the criminal element to get out or, quote, suffer the consequences. The headline in the Seattle paper was, quote, Skagway's good citizens refused to longer submit to the flagrant crimes of the lawless, and aided by the U.S. government, begin a moral crusade. However, while some small-time criminals quickly boarded ships for Victoria and Seattle, Soapy and his hardcore friends decided to stay and fight for their position. He formed his own rival committee and called it, mockingly, the Committee of Permanent Law and Order. The Seattle paper reported that 217 people, double the Committee of 101, signed a countermotion addressed to the Committee of 101 that said simply, quote, We, the people of Skagway, are running this town to suit ourselves. The committee can go to hell. Smith himself is said to have exclaimed, quote, I am the uncrowned king of Skagway, and they can't drive me away. On March 9, 1898, the U.S. Army declared martial law. 
but the problem wasn't really solved as long as Soapy and a few hundred friends remained entrenched in town. Things continued to simmer dangerously between the two sides until just after that July 4th parade where Soapy and his men paraded their strength through town. On July 7th, a miner named John Stewart returned from the Klondike with $2,700 in gold, about $75,000 in today's money. After losing at Three Card Monte, Soapy's men robbed him of the rest of his gold. He complained to the deputy U.S. marshal, who was on Soapy's payroll. The deputy told him to stay quiet and he would see what he could do, which was approximately nothing. The next day, July 8th, 1898, the Committee of 101 decided to have a meeting. And to make it harder for Soapy's toughs to break it up, they held the meeting on a wharf called the Juno Wharf down on the waterfront. Four men were assigned to guard the entrance to the wharf, including the town surveyor, Frank Reed, who, by the way, had shot and killed a man back in the lower 48, but had been acquitted for self-defense. There are a few versions of what happened next, and in fact, it's still controversial. The argument about who drew their gun first and who shot Soapy is so lively that the Wikipedia page about the gunfight has been the site of vicious debate in the past, to the point where one editor called for the page to be deleted entirely. But here's one of the most common versions. The director of a cowboy gunfight movie couldn't have designed it for more drama. Frank Reed, solid citizen, is standing with his revolver with three other citizens, apparently unarmed, guarding the town meeting on the wharf. Soapy appears at the end of the street, his rifle held in one hand and flipped back to rest on his shoulder, pointing at the sky. Some of his gang are with him. They start to walk towards Frank Reed to break up the meeting. Unlike in the movies, neither man points his weapon and shoots. Soapy continues to approach until they are face to face. Words are exchanged, but neither man will back down. Then something happens. Soapy swings his rifle to hit Reed, and Reed points his revolver at Soapy. My God, don't shoot, exclaims Soapy. Shots ring out. A few seconds later, Soapy is dead on the ground, and Reed is badly wounded in the lower abdomen. He will die, painfully, 12 days later. This breaks the spell, and the gang's power dissipates. Soon a dozen of Soapy's ringleaders are in jail, and the rest of the gang skip town. Some of his most prominent toughs sailed for Seattle, where the police chief, when he heard of their arrival, had them arrested. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer put it like this. Quote, it is proposed that Seattle shall not be made a dumping ground for the criminal element of Skagway. Soapy himself was buried, pointedly, just outside the official boundaries of the Civic Cemetery. Reed was buried inside, with a monument saying that he gave his life for the honor of Skagway. You can see both graves today if you visit Skagway, as well as that of Ella Wilson. The post-intelligencer obituary writer figured Soapy made $1.5 million over 20 or 25 years, that's over $40 million in today's money. But spent it all on high living and spreading the cash around to buy popularity. The obituary speculates that he lost more money gambling than any man in the United States. He died relatively poor, they say. The Seattle paper summed it all up this way, quote, Sporting men admit that Frank Reed, city surveyor of Skagway, did a good job when he killed Smith. Yet they also say that it remains a fact that Smith was the most popular man in Alaska. If you liked this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really liked the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the cost of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back.